This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, well, it's been interesting. In Cleveland, a still unfolding story, a home on a forgotten street with three largely forgotten women were held in horrible captivity for so long, right in our midst, now free, raising so many questions about how aware we are of what's happening right around us. And in Washington, eight months after Benghazi, hearings on Capitol Hill, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time. I'm reminded of Anita Hill and John Dean and the spectacles that surrounded them with inquiring congressmen before them and a gallery of onlookers behind them. We've explored these issues on past shows, and today we zero in on two episodes. The espionage of Anna Montez, who spied for Cuba for so many years right under the noses of the agencies with whom she worked. And the unique relationship of Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, an intimate political marriage that spans 17 years, but which, until now, has been shrouded largely in mystery. We've had Evan Thomas on the show a while back to talk about Ike's Bluff, and a few weeks ago we focused on in on Nixon with Robert Redford's documentary All the President's Men Revisited. But today we'll join in with Jeffrey Frank, whose new work, Ike and Dick, Portrait of a Strange Marriage, is on bookshelves now. It will join Eisenhower and Nixon in, together in the story. But first, we welcome to Polyoptics my old friend, Jim Popkin. Jim spent the big part of his career at the heart of breaking news stories with NBC News, their senior investigative producer. He now runs the communications consulting firm Seven Oaks Media Group, but keeps his reporting instincts ever sharp, evidenced by his April cover story, The Queen of Cuba, for the Washington Post magazine on Anna Montez. Jim, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much, Josh. First, as we get into this story, Jim, uh, tell me about the incarceration of very dangerous women in the United States, where they're all held and what kind of people you might find behind those walls. Well, that was actually a kind of interesting little side sidelight that I, I didn't know anything about. You know, we, most of us have heard about Supermax out in Colorado. Well, there's a Supermax for women, and it's in uh, Texas, and Anna Montez, we'll talk about, is one of only 20 uh, inmates in this facility, and it's reserved for some of the most dangerous women in federal custody. So she uh, she sp- spent time um, for for a long time until her release with uh, Squeaky Fromm, who of course was a Charles Manson follower and and attempted an assassination on President Ford, and some lesser known but equally scary women who've committed some really frightening crimes. So it's, a, it's actually a prison within a larger facility uh, in Texas, and just for, at this point, just the, the considered the, the 20 most dangerous women in America. And all of these great long-form magazine stories, of which the Queen of Cuba now has to rank, uh, begins with a unique source document that only the author really has access to or understands how to make something of. And in your case... It is a 14-page handwritten letter from inmate Montez. Tell me about that letter and how you got a, a hold of it. Well, I um, this this has been going on for a long time. Anna Montez, just quickly, a little background. She is an American woman. She was working for the DIA, the Defense Intelligence uh, Agency, which 
does kind of all the white papers and analysis for the Pentagon. And she rose up through the ranks, and secretly she was spying for Cuba for, for 17 years. And I started talking to her family. She was arrested just after 9-11, and I started talking to her family and many other folks who were involved in this case. And through, um, through a combination of, of efforts, was able to obtain a letter, handwritten letter, that Anna Montez wrote from prison to a family member. And what's a couple of things uh, interesting, first of all, she's not allowed to talk to the outside world. How did she get the 14-page letter out? Uh, well, she's allowed to send uh, correspondence to family and to approved friends. Very small group, and her mail is monitored. Uh, someone was kind enough to share this letter with me. And what's interesting is you see that here's a woman arrested in 2001. So obviously, you know, more than a decade later, she still has harbors the same views. She still thinks that what she did was righteous, and she essentially says she'd do the exact same thing today. So her jig is up in 2001, and we'll get to how the case was cracked, but how does it all start for a woman from the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland, the family situation she was in, and how she finds herself in one of these entry-level government jobs because she was looking for work coming home from, I guess, uh, master's work or graduate work in Spain? Yeah. So uh, she's born, uh, she was born on a, on a U.S. military base. Her parents are uh, from Puerto Rico, but Anna Montes is an American citizen. She went to UVA and then to Johns Hopkins to SICE, their international relations school. And it, it, her kind of political education really started in, in Spain on a junior year abroad trip. She met some, some folks who were pretty political, and her, her, her political consciousness kind of grew. And then at the point at which she got to SICE, uh, she was pretty radical. And um, actually, it's very interesting, just... A week or so ago, the Justice Department unsealed an affidavit against um, a woman who was at SICE with her, a fellow uh, graduate student at SICE, her name, another American named Marta Velazquez. And in this indictment, uh, she allegedly is the essentially the recruiter for Anna Montes. So you have two American women who are working on behalf of the Cuban government, spies um, allegedly, in the case of, of Marta Velazquez, um, who are who are working on behalf of the Cuban government and uh, and who both become spies for Castro. Interesting in your article, the Queen of Cuba, um, and you are talking now about Johns Hopkins School of uh, of uh, of SICE. Um, you you talk about that as a hotbed of of espionage recruiting, especially for Cuba. Has there any, now that you had a cover story in the Washington Post magazine, any blowback from this revered institution, Johns Hopkins and, and SICE, that uh, how are you calling us out as a, as a breeding ground for spies? Well, I, don't, I can't say that SICE is unique. Uh, in fact, there have been some Cuban defectors who've spoken out and written on, on this topic, and they say that they look to graduate schools in particular uh, as their recruiting grounds. And there are people like this woman, Marta Velazquez, who, uh, who's always saying her indictment was just unsealed, um, who, whose job it is to spot new talent. And according to the government, 
this uh, also kind of radical woman, Princeton grad, uh, you know, very, very bright. She spotted Anna Montez. They were of like mind. And uh, according to the indictment, she introduced Montez to Cubans working out of, uh, out of their uh, unit in, in, in the uh, United Nations in New York and basically converted her in, into a uh, full-fledged spy from that, from that point. So there, there actually there have been a number of other notable cases out, out of SICE, but I, I really I can't pick on them too much because I think all the, my guess would be that the Cubans and other intelligence agencies look at all of the graduate schools, uh, especially in the Washington area, for folks who, who they think they might be able to rec- recruit and who can they can insert at kind of a lower level um, in government positions and and watch their careers blossom because that's how it worked with Anna when she was at SICE she was a low-level employee working in the FOIA office of the Department of Justice she already had a security clearance but she really didn't have access to uh, the kind of information that Cuba wanted but they encouraged her to uh, to apply for jobs that would would put her in that position where she could uh, obtain acquire classified data that would be useful to Cuba and that's what happened before we get to her rise up through the ranks uh, you know it, it's not always that people begin their radicalization process just when in college or graduate school and in your article you point out that her upbringing might have been a breeding ground for discontent you actually quote from her yearbook you say her favorite things included summer beaches chocolate chip cookies having a good time with fun people and that's not exactly the the Anna Montez that you came to profile in her breeding is it that's um yeah you're absolutely right Josh you know she started out her father was in the military so she's essentially a military brat and her her siblings she has three siblings a sister and two brothers her sister and her brother to this day work for the FBI her other brother has had other jobs in Miami non-government jobs but if you think about that you consider dad dad was in the military he was a physician in the military and then brother and sister end up helping defend the country with the FBI it really does make you wonder what happened? How did she end up this way? And how did she make such a radical break from her family and from her past? Because you're right, there's nothing in, there's nothing to suggest really that when she was in high school that she would end up this way. Uh, but she got radicalized uh, as she grew, grew older. So she's moving up uh, through government service. And you say that in 1985, she secretly visited Cuba. How does anyone working for the US government make their way to Havana for secret meetings well it takes some uh, real planning and um, she would use she visited Cuba at least four times and her first time as you say is in 1985 and and I just learned a week or so ago that that she went with this woman uh, Marta Velazquez who was at SICE uh, and and introduced her to the Cubans they went together um, we know from law enforcement that the way she would get to Cuba to cover her tracks is she would have a fake passport, she wore wigs, and she would go on a really circuitous route. Typically, she'd fly from Washington, D.C. Or, or New York to Europe, and then from Europe to the Caribbean, and from the Caribbean to Cuba. 
And that whole jaunt to Europe was really just to kind of throw folks off, and so so it wasn't a direct flight. Uh, and 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 in some occasions, she would also meet later in her career. She would meet some of her handlers in Europe as well. You say later in the article too that her her uh, her craft of espionage was not as as rigid as you might expect because in the Chinese restaurants of Cleveland Park, she might have been meeting with her Cuban handlers over dim sum. Yeah, I would say this about her. She was pretty good. She was very, very disciplined. Just just think about this. She goes to work for DIA. She's there for 16 years. So there's there's one year where she's at Department of Justice. And she's so she's in, in this position, essentially spying for 17 years. She is meticulous about her security in this sense. She never brought as far as we know, a document out of the building. You know, if you think of the other spies, Hansen and and Rick Ames, and some of the other kind of notorious spies in history, there always are, are documents involved and cash payments. Anna Montez is an ideological spy and also very, very bright. She had a fantastic memory, and she had two jobs. Her day job is she'd go in her cubicle at bowling with a DIA, and she had access. She had a very high clearance level. She had access to literally thousands of documents if she so chose every single day on her computer. I mean, that's typical for for all analysts, not just for her. And she'd hone in on the ones that, that meant something to her and would be meaningful to Cuba. And then she'd go home, and, and her second job would begin in her apartment on Macomb Street right by the zoo uh, in DC and she would essentially regurgitate what she had learned that day type it out onto a Toshiba laptop that the Cubans had had uh, had bought for her and and on which they had installed uh, software so that everything could be encrypted just on terms of your reporting and understanding different people's mental capacities you write about quiet memorization it, how do you evaluate her as a, a mental repository of information and how anyone is able to scan documents, read them, memorize them, hold them in your brain for how many, ever many hours, and then go back to Macomb Street and regurgitate them? Well, I mean, that's difficult, and she was pretty, you know, she's certainly pretty bright, so she had a real aptitude for that, and I guess after 17 years, you'd probably get pretty good at doing that every night with that discipline. But what she also did, which didn't require that kind of memorization, uh, is to turn over the names of everyone she knew who worked in the U.S. government and had anything to do with Cuba or the region. So, you know, in some cases, it's, it's names of people operating in a, in a classified position that would be extremely valuable information uh, to Cuba, as you, as you can imagine, you know, if, if there's a, a knock or a, a non-official officer for the United States working in Havana, clearly Cuba wants to know about that, uh, the Castro brothers want to know about that. But even in, in addition to that, um, let's say someone, she knows someone who's an analyst at the CIA or Homeland or, or Coast Guard or wherever, whose, uh, whose portfolio includes Cuba and the region, she would identify that person to the Cubans, and that person then would be watched, you know, for possible recruitment or just to keep an eye on them. It's really, really essential intel for for any intelligence agency to have. So it was a combination of very detailed, classified technical material that she provided on listening systems and how we, we as a government keep an eye on Cuba, and then also personnel. 
So she was extremely helpful to them. Meanwhile, her sister and her brother are down in Miami working for the FBI, as you say, uh, involved in the very uh, effort against uh, Cuba that she's helping to uh, thwart in many ways. And what are what are uh, Tito and Lucy thinking about their sister who working for the government and the CIA might be the last thing they think their sister might be doing? Are they scratching their heads and wondering what's going on? Well, you know, just as in terms of the, like my own discovery in this story, I had known about this for a while and been reporting on it, but it took, took me a while to realize that not only did Lucy, her only sister, work for the FBI in Miami, had known that for, for a while, but in addition to that, the main case and the case that she's kind of proudest of is uh, when she worked to try with, with, uh, with FBI agents to identify Cuban spies operating in Miami. And she was successful. She's a language analyst. And so she listened to wiretap conversations. And there was a big bust um, in 98. Uh, it's called the WASP Network. And Cuba had inserted a lot of agents into Miami. They were, they were trying to kind of worm their way into the military and into government positions. And they were exposed. And Lucy Montez was a key figure in working that case. She had no idea that her sister was working for the Cubans. And just to, to a long-winded way to answer your question, Josh, the reason she, she didn't know, and, and neither did her brother Tito, who is with the FBI out actually out of Atlanta, the reason they didn't know is that Anna at a certain point really shut down emotionally. She revealed almost nothing of a personal or professional nature to her family. They would, they would have conversations, and, uh, and Anna would just refuse to answer. And Lucy thought it was very, very strange. She was upset about it. The whole family was for a long time. She just wrote it off to her sister being eccentric and maybe depressed. Um, and so imagine this, 1998, Lucy Montez, FBI, loyal FBI employee in Miami, works on identifying Cuban spies wins awards for doing so. She never tells her sister, Anna, who's with the Pentagon and whose whole career focuses on Cuba. She never told her because she just knew in her head that Anna would just change the subject and not be interested. And the same was true for for Tito and, and other family members. No one had any idea. And to the credit of the FBI, they obviously investigated the family and let them stay in their jobs. And so here you have Anna Montez sitting in a prison in Texas right now, uh, convicted of espionage, and her sister and brother continue to this day to work for the FBI. It's pretty remarkable. And as Operation Wasp is being uh, uncovered, thanks to Lucy Montez, let's go back up to Cleveland Park and talk about the very gradual, it feels, unraveling of Anna Montez's spycraft. I mean, she's do, she has been trained by the Cubans to thwart polygraph tests by, very interestingly in your article, uh, tightening her sphincter muscles. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you said that. I'm, I'm, yeah, go ahead. How could I let this conversation go without talking about tightening one's sphincter muscles? Um, and, and, and all of these things, the water-soluble paper that she's working on, the way she receives uh, her instructions over uh, a coded frequency on AM radio, 
And how are things beginning to sort of fall apart for her? Well, remarkably, it's really with this WASP case in 1998. So you have these these two parallel lives, these two sisters working uh, unknowingly in opposition to each other. So Lucy with the FBI is helping to work on busting Cuban spies in Miami. She's successful and, you know, she was she's not an agent, but so she's part of a team. She's successful and what happened in 98 is the Cubans realized we have a real problem. We need to shut down. So they stopped talking to all their other assets, and we later learned that besides Anna, there were there were other people as well who subsequently had been arrested. So the Cuban handlers stopped talking to their own operatives in the United States. Well, one of those operatives is Anna Montes, and she had so much psychological pressure. It's it's dangerous and tense, obviously, to spy. And who can you share that with? You can't share it with your family. You can't share it with her, in her case, her boyfriend who worked for the Pentagon in the same field. You can't share it with your friends. The only people you can share those emotions with are the Cubans. And the Cubans, as a result of the WASP case, stopped talking to Anna and the, all the other spies operating in the U.S. It drove Anna Montez crazy. So starting in 98, uh, she had no contact with them, and they were kind of her social life. In fact, at one point, um, she was so lonely, they set her up with a, a guy on a, uh, I guess on a date would be one way to put it, um, you know, just to just just to kind of help her out romantically. And she she really started to break down in this period of isolation. She started to shower for long periods of time. She started to eat a very restricted diet, in some cases only eating boiled potatoes with no seasoning. When she drove, she wore gloves. She had a lot of, started to, to take on some very odd um, personality traits. And she's really, at this point, kind of starting to break down. And that's right around the time when, through a variety of circumstances, the FBI started to get on to her. In preparation for talking with you, I went back and looked at some old video of Scott Carmichael talking about his book. And as you like, look at him on the screen, he is not Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness. <laughs> so describe FBI agent Carmichael and the uh, long process of... It wasn't... F, he, Carmichael was not FBI, but right. but how Steve Carmichael I. began to make the case and be, talking to a, for, at first, reluctant FBI and then one that appreciated all of his spade work. Exactly. So Scott Carmichael is, he calls himself a mole hunter, but really he works for, it's essentially the internal um, apparatus, internal security for DIA in Washington. So he's looking for people who are security risks to the nation. And an extreme example would be a spy like Montez. He had met her and someone had had mentioned that that she had some kind of odd behavior earlier. And so he had met her and interviewed her and thought that she was being deceitful to him, but she couldn't prove it. And she had passed a lie detector test for the DIA. So he had to close that kind of early investigation. Years later, a colleague of his learns from another intelligence agency that the FBI has an open case. It's called an unsub case, unidentified subject. We know as a government that someone's spying on behalf of Cuba, but we don't know who it is. And they had all these little disparate 
tips, but they couldn't put it together. And they spent two years really without going anywhere, uh, identifying who that person was. Through, uh, through some circumstances, Scott Carmichael heard about this and on his own and without authority, he entered some of this data into his own computer databases and he has access to an enormous amount of information on DIA and Pentagon employees. And he put this stuff together. Like the Mark Knoller of DIA. <laughs> exactly. I, maybe your audience, you don't have to describe who Mark Knoller is. No, but we yeah, don't. We, we assume everyone knows who Mark Knoller yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. So um, he put this stuff together and, it, and the computer spit out a number, a large number of candidates. And one of the names and one of the faces that popped up was Anna Montez. And Scott tells me he looked at his screen and he immediately said, oh my God, she's a spy. I know it in my bones. And he started to gather a case. Again, the FBI has no idea. In fact, the FBI, when they learned that Scott Carmichael had this information about an unsub investigation, they were very upset. They were worried about the leak and before they wanted to hear anything about Scott's hypothesis. And he had to convince the Bureau that this guy who, you know, is not a law enforcement official, he does internal security issues for DIA, that he was on to something. And early on, some of his information that he put together was wrong. He had a couple little facts wrong that were, that were important. And it was easy for the FBI to, um, to kind of look the other way, in some cases even belittle the information that he had. Because he had a sidekick named Carl Gator James, which fits <laughs> too perfectly into the, uh, the cast of characters for your upcoming movie. That's right. And, you know, there's quite a hierarchy of law enforcement and uh, DIA internal affairs is really not on the same plane as FBI. So Scott had a lot of proving to do. And, and, and as you said, you may, the, life shouldn't be like this, but it is. Scott at the time was really heavy. And uh, I mean, he calls himself, he says, I look like a Kmart security guard. So he's not your Elliot Ness character. So it was a weird culture clash. And he had a lot of convincing to do. Uh, but he was extremely persistent. And he stayed at it and kept building his case on his own and went to the FBI and convinced them to open a full investigation. And once they did, there were two great agents um, who, who worked on this, Pete Lapp and Steve McCoy, once they were able to convince their, their own bureaucracy and then the FISA court to open a full investigation, the FBI just went to town, and, and they can be pretty impressive with these big cases. They assigned over 50 people. They started to follow her. Um, they monitored her computer and her phone everywhere she went, and they started to build a case on her. And so how does the, the net... Uh, begin to converge on her. There's first the ruse and then the break-in at her apartment, and how does it all fall apart for Anna Montez? Well, they get uh, approval to surreptitiously search her apartment, and this is, you know, a huge breakthrough. They find her laptop. They image the laptop. You know, it's, this is a black bag job. They sneak in uh, to her apartment, and they're photographing everything, looking through things, and they image her her. Um, the hard drive of her laptop. And about a week or so later, the tech guys um, give a, it translated because most of the stuff they found was in Spanish. Uh, they faxed over, this is 2001, faxed over pages of her hard drive to the FBI Washington field office. 
And Pete Lapp, who worked on the case and helped break into her apartment, said that was our eureka moment because what was on the hard drive was so incriminating. It was uh, some of the shortwave radio broadcasts that Anna had decrypted. It was messages from Havana on how to spy, how to clean up her her computer, which she was she was never very uh, computer savvy, uh, and and also some damaging little passages like "Thank you so much for identifying the name of so and so, who is an American in Cuba." When he arrived, we were quote waiting for him with open arms. Yeah. So it's an admission that they got that information she provided of a classified nature identifying an American in Cuba was passed directly to the Cubans and it obviously jeopardized that investigation. So she's brought into the inspector general's office. Uh, she's lured in there. Uh, she's not allowed to uh, be seconded on an assignment. All of these elaborate steps to basically uh, uh, corner her. Uh, and and how does she actually react when she's confronted by Carmichael and told that she's under arrest for suspicion for espionage? Yeah, as you said, so Carmichael and the FBI come up with some great ruses. One of them is to separate her from her purse. They, they, she takes this purse everywhere, and they, they start to speculate that she keeps her uh, encryption codes in the purse. So there's an elaborate ruse to get her away from it at DIA, and they're successful, and they do find um, her uh, this information on, on how pager numbers, Cuban pager numbers, and a little cipher on, on how to decrypt information. And it's all in water-soluble solu- paper, which I love. And so they, at this point, they know they had her, and the the end game is they come up with a reason to tell her that she has to go to the IG's office. They say that this is after 9-11 now, so the, the country's on a war footing. We're, we're putting together a battle plan for Afghanistan, and someone calls her and says, Anna, you have to help us out. We know you're working on these important matters, but you have to come to the IG's office. One of your employees screwed up. Just come down here and deal with it, and we can get it out of the way. So she goes down there. She's escorted into a conference room, and waiting for her is uh, the the two guys from the FBI, Pete Lapp and Steve McCoy. And, you know, they had a whole kind of ritual prepared for how they were going to try to get her to talk, and uh, it really was not very successful. She was pretty bright, and she immediately requests a lawyer. Um, She's pretty stone-faced. And they arrest her, cuff her, and lead her away. And Pete Lapp said afterwards that they were worried because she actually she had fainted a couple times at um, at DIA events when someone would surprise her with information, not negative information, but any information. So they were very concerned. And they had a nurse, they had an oxygen tank, and a wheelchair in the wings, assuming that when they tell her that they she's under suspicion for espionage, she's going to pass out or worse. And Pete Lapp said they cuffed her and she walked out, her shoulders held high as if uh, almost nothing had happened. She was in, in supremely confident and, and walked out of the building that she had occupied you know, for the last 16 years for the last time and, and they didn't need to use any of that equipment. Now, the headline of your article, Jim Popkin, uh, the Queen of Cuba, is the subhead is Anna Montez did much harm spying for Cuba. Chances are you haven't heard of her. And if we think back to the the stories of people like Robert Hansen or Aldrich James that 
dominated sort of Pete Williams reporting for days on end when they were uncovered when you uh, were were doing that kind of uh, investigative reporting for NBC News. No one really knew about Anna Montez because of the particular timing of when uh, when she was finally arrested by the FBI. So uh, what? why were we so distracted from this major uh, espionage arrest? And what happens to the story now, uh, I think, what, 12 years later? So there are two good reasons why most folks have never heard of her. One is, as you said, Josh, timing. Anna Montez was arrested 10 days after 9-11. The whole country is just transfixed with that story. And I, I was I was working at NBC at the time uh, with Pete Williams, and I remember it well. I mean, it was a frightening time, and, and there was a, a legitimate concern that other terrorists were in the country and there were going to be other attacks. So when Anna Montez is arrested, it made the papers, it was in the Post, it was in the New York Times, but it came and went with the reporting on 9-11 and then our response in Afghanistan. It didn't get the attention that it normally would have. The second reason uh, I think that she's not very well known is that she was working for Cuba. And there's a perception that Russia, you know, in, in, our, in our nation's past, kind of been a bad guy and a real serious adversary, Iran, China, North Korea. But I mean, in terms of perception as um, a country that can really do us harm, most people think of Cuba as a real paper tiger. Right. The, yep. um, there's there's no threat that Cuba's going to take over the nation, obviously. But what that doesn't really take into consideration is that they have an excellent intelligence apparatus. And if you look at the history of how successful they've been in spying here and in shutting down our spying in that nation recently, uh, I mean, over the last two decades, let's say, they're pretty impressive. They were trained by the Soviets and they're very good. And just one other point on that is that Cuba alone may not be much of a threat, but Cuba has a track record of sharing or selling secrets that it learns about about America to America's enemies. And that was a real concern. And the higher-ups at DIA after 9-11 realized that Anna Montez was on track to get essentially get the battle plan for Afghanistan. And there was a real concern that if she did, she would pass it to the Cubans and the Cubans would sell it or just trade it or give it away to the Taliban. And, and obviously no one wanted that. So there was extreme pressure to arrest her uh, as soon as possible after 9-11. So nearly 11 and a half years have passed, Jim Popkin, and uh, where does the story of Anna Montez come from here? Uh, she's been beside Carmichael's book, largely unwritten about, untalked about for a dozen years. You have now brought her, in this case, back to the fore. Does it have legs to move on from here? Well, she's in prison for about another decade, but what, what was just amazing to me, just on the human emotional side of things, is her sister Lucy loyal FBI employee, devastated by what her sister did. And another letter we haven't talked about is a, is a, an emotionally raw, angry letter that Lucy wrote just a couple years ago to Anna in prison. And Lucy did share that letter with me. And it just, she finally let everything out and let her feelings be known about her sister. So in terms of where does it stand now, 
you have one sister in maximum security will be locked up for another 10 years. Her other sister in Miami, angry as hell and, and waiting for her. But amazingly, Lucy says, even though I despise what my sister did, ultimately, I love her. I have to. She's blood. And when she comes out of prison, if she wants to crash with me for a while as a transition, I'll be waiting for her and I will take her in. And I thought that was just an incredible statement about loyalty and and betrayal and what family ultimately means, even in a case if someone does some an act like this that is just so atrocious. Jim Popkin, an amazing story. The Queen of Cuba, Anna Montez, did much harm f- spying for Cuba. Chances are you haven't heard of her. You can find it in WashingtonPost.com and hopefully sometime in the future on the screen. Jim, thanks so much for coming and spending some time with us. Thank you so much, Josh. After the break, Jeffrey Frank and Ike and Dick. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. Jeffrey Frank has served as a senior editor of The New Yorker and the deputy editor of The Washington Post's Outlook section. He's also written a trilogy of novels about Washington, The Columnist, Bad Publicity, and Truly Hopedale. But his latest work, Ike and Dick, nonfiction to be sure, might have the most novelistic essence of anything he's done in its expansive time, in the intertwining of families, fates, and fortunes, in the triumphs and also the heartbreak. And it's also all true. Jeff Frank, welcome to Polyoptics. Uh, Thanks so much, glad to be here. Jeff, I was in uh, California last week. I had a day on my own. I was in Orange County. I rented a car. I set my GPS for Yorba Linda. I was somehow drawn after a couple shows that we've done that have touched on Nixon that I had not fully experienced Nixon or had enough of a Nixon dose over the last couple of years that I, I had to make my way to the Nixon Library and Museum, my, the first visit I ever had. And I had a, a truly extraordinary experience reliving this amazing life that begins and ends in your Belinda. What's your personal connection with Nixon after the, the novels that you've written and your, your career as a journalist? Well, it's been, a, it's been um, he is the most fascinating figure of our time. He was, when I was growing up, he was always with us. He was always there. And the idea that, in some ways, the, the idea that Nixon is no longer around is somehow hard to, hard to accept. And, and, uh, and I will say that having, you know, going to Yorba Linda is, is, I agree with you, really something. I think I made nine trips to 18,000 Yorba Linda Boulevard just to sort of go there and you sort of, just sort of you know, seeing his little house and then, but then all the amazing things in the archives. I mean, it, you know, notes that he scribbled to himself, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and uh, it was, it's kind of fascinating. He had a, and he was, as I say, he, had, he was always with us, and he had this really interesting life before he became the disgraced former president that we all know about. Absolutely, and we can get into some of that. And and as you go to your Belinda, and the focus that they do allow on Watergate shows the uh, how how specific the taping system was, not only in the Oval Office, but in the in the Vice President's OEOB office, in the Lincoln sitting room, in the phone. I don't think he had any taping mechanisms in the Capitol, but because of Watergate, 
we w- the tapes came to the fore and then no longer in any presidential administration do we have those types of non-printed uh, archival materials so we have this very rich view of the nixon presidency but we don't have anything after that it makes one wonder how uh, historians uh, will study uh, off off camera or, or unofficial moments uh, going forward I will say, though, that it, it breaks my heart that the, that the pre-presidency wasn't taped either. He didn't start until he was in the White House for a couple of years. So we've, I, you, you miss a whole period, a whole sort of interesting period. His first, his first, three, or four, his first three or four months in office were really creative and really interesting, and that, none of that is on tape. All of the, all of the, you know, the, the negative welfare plan, the meetings with, with Pat Moynihan, none of that stuff exists on tape. But that's a great, that's a great loss. Well, let's go back to 51 and 52 and just yeah, hear sure. a little bit of, of, of the beginning of the Eisenhower presidency as manifested in, in his theme song. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We don't want John or Dean or Harry, let's do that big job right. Let's get in step with the guy that's hep, get in step with I. You like Ike. So the Supreme Allied Commander comes home from World War II, Jeffrey Frank, and he enters into this strange marriage with Senator Richard Nixon of California. How does the marriage begin? Yeah, it took, it took a while. By the way, that, that theme song, obviously Don Draper wasn't involved in that. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the really sophisticated advertising came later. Nixon hardly, Nixon was a first-term senator from, from Orange County. He had, def, he had run probably his nastiest race in 1915, and he defeated um, um, Helen Hagen Douglas. He had met Eisenhower for the first time in the summer of 1950 at the Bohemian Grove, and Eisenhower barely took notice of him. But there was a lot of pressure for Eisenhower to run for president. Everybody wanted Eisenhower to run for president. He was a he was a national hero, a beloved a beloved personage of the sort we simply don't have anymore. Democrats wanted him to run for president. Republicans wanted him to run for president. There was one senator, a man named Paul Douglas from Illinois, a Democrat, who suggested, well, we could both nominate him and then we'll have different vice presidents so we can separate that, that way. And Nixon kind of sensed it. Nixon, Nixon had met Eisenhower, as I say, at the Bohemian Grove. He paid a call on him in Paris when, when, Nixon, when Eisenhower was, 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 was back with NATO. And he sort of saw him coming as a as a sort of a great a great leader. And Nixon, um, Nixon, I think in, in, in a sort of vague way, he had his eye on this. Eisenhower did not have his eye on Nixon, but Eisenhower's advisors had their eye on Nixon. And Nixon had a lot going for him. He was a uh, he was a he was a uh, a, 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 a Californian, and Eisenhower was from the Midwest. He was a red hunter, and at that time, in our, in our history, this sort of a strong anti-communist uh, position was was very sort of valuable and very very valuable in terms of appeasing the right wing of the party. And he was an internationalist, which Eisenhower was too. Nixon Nixon had voted for the Marshall Plan, and Eisenhower's main major opponent was Senator Bob Taft of Ohio, who was sort of an isolationist. And Tom Dewey, the governor of New York, was was very much for Nixon. So Eisenhower, there was a meeting, a classic smoke-filled room after Eisenhower was nominated in '52, and they basically basically pushed Nixon on him. Eisenhower knew who he was; he was fine. He said he was he was on a list of people, but that was really it. And uh, Eisenhower really even had no idea that that the that the nominee of the party it was that it was his duty to select the vice president. And he said, "Oh, I get to do that. Fine." And that was that was really how he was picked. So they barely knew each other. 
As you say in your book, he was on the list. Uh, you know, when I worked for yeah. President Clinton in, uh, or for then Governor Clinton in 1992, we gathered for the convention uh, in New York. Al Gore was selected as his running mate. We sent them on a bus tour all the way to St. Louis, and they seemed like perfect fast friends, uh, in, including their wives. And I want to play a newsreel from 1952 of Ike and Nixon on a fishing expedition to Colorado, a very different visual dynamic. Let's hear it. While on the other side of the political fence, General Eisenhower relaxes at a mountain retreat in Colorado, where he takes time out for a little fishing, and also to talk campaign strategy with his youthful running mate, Senator Nixon. The nature of the talks is confidential between the two Republican campaigners, particularly when one is a campaigner of 40 years' experience. But the technique of fly casting is one in which General Ike is equally skillful. He initiates the vice presidential aspirant into the fine points, and he promptly puts them into practice. It is the restful lull before a stormy battle to come. Age and experience join with youth to make a team that sends Republican hope soaring in the campaign of 1952. Well, I had an opportunity when I was in Washington during the past two weeks to talk to a number of congressmen and senators, and also I had a chance to look over the mail. And uh, I have been tremendously gratified by the spirit of unity that has developed in the Republican Party. We're going to have a united front this November that's going to assure the victory for General Eisenhower that the country needs. Victory for the party and what is more important for the country, my boy. <laughs> What is more important for the country, my boy? I watched the video. This is an awkward kinship between the two, uncle and nephew, perhaps, uh, father and son. How do you remember this in, in, your, in your writing and creating of this picture? That's an amazing clip, and, the, and, and because, you, yes, you, you got it exactly. And it was, he said, yes, the country, my boy. He's sort of giving him a lecture. He's, it's a reminder to me that you know, he really, Eisenhower was not particularly fond of professional politicians and already he could see Nixon caring more about politics than about anything else. And it, and it, became, and it, it, it really annoyed Eisenhower several times during the relationship. And it was so, so it really it set a certain tone between them. You could already hear it. The, actually, the tone had already been set the, on the night, the night that Nixon was, was, was put on the ticket. And you could, see, you could see a visual of Nixon and Eisenhower, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, always the tableau when, the, when, the, when, when all the party leaders come out and the president and vice presidential candidates hold their hands up. Nixon is grabbing Eisenhower's hand, and he, could, he felt that I, who hated being touched, he said, I could feel resistance there. And it was, there was that, from the very beginning, there was this sort of awkwardness between them, and uh, they were so different. You go to Yorba Linda and you see Nixon talk in his own voice about how important his football team was and his coach, and yet you do see in this newsreel how awkward a uh, athlete he was as a fly fisherman and also a golfer, Ike being a master of both, including bridge, along with his boys who would convene in, at, uh, at Augusta. Uh, talk about the, the the sort of inability of Nixon to crack this circle and crack the the social graces of General Eisenhower. Well, I, I have to give Nixon credit for he, he couldn't fly fishing was was never going to happen, and he he just couldn't do bridge all this all of this all the stuff bridge just totally bored him, and I, he didn't much like golf, but what he but he made himself learn golf, and I actually I talked to a, I talked to a man who had caddied for him in in, in the summer of 1953. He was at a country club in Monteloking, New Jersey, and even and at twilight he was out there 
playing, you know, playing, playing golf by himself and learning the game for because he knew he'd eventually have to play with Eisenhower. And uh, but that didn't. I mean, he, and he did learn to play golf. And Eisenhower a couple of times turned him out, took him out to the Burning Tree Country Club. Usually, when Ike was furious about something else, nothing to do with Nixon, and he could let off steam with him. But uh, no, it, it never, it never got Nixon into Ike's social circle. Ike was friends with, with uh, businessmen, with, uh, with, and and, uh, and uh, old soldiers and so on. He, he was very close to a couple of the founders of the Augusta National Golf Club, a place that Nixon was never, to which never Nixon was never invited. So the ticket starts a little awkwardly with the revelation or just reporting on the secret fund, as you will understand when you go to your Belinda, not any different than other fun, political funds that were managed, but it was made a big deal of. Ike tells uh, Nixon, or at least Nixon is instructed to go on TV and explain it. Yep. In your Belinda, it's not called the checkers speech, but we all know it as that. Let's hear a little bit of it. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency and as a man whose honesty and, and integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving details. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the present administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the Vice Presidency of the United States is a great office. And I feel that the people have got to have confidence in the integrity of the men who run for that office and who might obtain it. I have a theory, too, that the best and only answer to a smear or to an honest misunderstanding of the facts is to tell the truth. And that's why I'm here tonight. I want to tell you my side of it. Jeff Frank, in both 1952 and 1956, Richard Nixon is perilously close to being dropped as uh, Dwight Eisenhower's first running mate and then vice president. How does he keep himself uh, on the ticket, and how does Eisenhower view the way Nixon performed in front of the camera at the checker speech? Yeah, I mean, he Nixon Nixon was a very good politician, and he he sensed very early that one thing Eisenhower couldn't do. The supreme commander of the Allied forces, the man who the man who had led the led the Allied armies, who had led the Allied Allied expeditionary force, the invasion of Normandy, he couldn't fight. He couldn't confront him directly. So, uh, and he and he sensed this. He, he sensed that Eisenhower was was probably incapable of saying to Nixon, "You're fired. You're out." And so Nixon got hints from people. The Herald Tribune, which was the which was the biggest uh, was supporter of Eisenhower and basically the basically the voice of Eastern Eastern Republicanism, told Nixon to resign. And Nixon got a phone call before he went on the air from Tom Dewey, who said, "We think Eisenhower's advisors think you should resign from the ticket." But Nixon said, "What did Eisenhower say?" And Dewey said, "Well, all I can do is tell you." Uh, tell you that uh, you know what, what what the advisors say, and Nixon of course knew that Eisenhower wanted, but he but he wasn't going to hear it himself, and he stuck it out. In that was and that would have been a, that really would have wrecked his career because there was a scandal that wasn't a scandal. I mean, the fund was, was sixteen, eighteen thousand dollars, and 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 pretty transparent. In '56, Eisenhower just just wanted him gone. He wanted to replace him with someone else. He had his eye on a on a deputy secretary of defense named Robert Anderson, who whoever history's forgotten. But Nixon again, he just he stuck it out. He he wasn't going to be he he wasn't going to leave unless Eisenhower told him to leave. And finally, um, Eisenhower there was a point where Eisenhower said, "Well, I've told Nixon to chart his own course," which Nixon took as a as a sort of signal that he should leave. And then Nixon said, "Well, I want, I want to stay on the ticket." And again, Eisenhower very un, very unhappily, but not publicly unhappily, 
couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't, he couldn't create a scene. He couldn't fire him. He even, he probably went along, there was a man named Harold Stassen who had started a campaign to get, to get uh, Governor Herford of Massachusetts on the ticket to replace Nixon. And he probably did it with Eisenhower's acquiescence, but we'll never know that. Um, Stassen never quite admitted it, and Eisenhower, and Eisenhower could, you know, couldn't, couldn't say it. But he really wanted him gone, and Nixon managed to outweigh him and outmaneuver him. Just sheer tenacity. And again, again, this instinct, this sort of knowing, knowing that, knowing that the, the General Eisenhower was, uh, was not going to directly confront Lieutenant Commander Nixon. Now, despite all these slights that uh, Vice President Nixon endures, he does the dirty work of the vice presidency. I want to hear one uh, newsreel from a trip to Venezuela. And as I think about my many trips with President Clinton abroad uh, with uh, sealed motorcades and uh, a huge amount of space between us and, and any any group that might get close to the presidential entourage, the view in Venezuela was quite different. Let's hear from the newsreel. Yeah. Vice President Nixon arrives in Venezuela, last stop on his South American tour. Awaiting him, another of the well-planned campaigns of harassment that have marred every step of his way. But he and Mrs. Nixon arrive smiling. Despite what has gone before, despite their knowledge, they'll be targets for another communist-sparked onslaught. That calling mob is kept at bay at the airport as the Nixons enter their cars, closed cars for the first time on this trip, a precaution that perhaps saves their lives, for the Caracas outbreak exceeds the darkest expectations. stops for traffic. So trips like this, uh, Jeff Frank, and also going to Russia and having the kitchen debate with Nikita Khrushchev, was General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, at least appreciative of all the uh, spade work and, and, and tough duty that his vice president endured on his behalf? Yeah, he didn't. He didn't much appreciate the trip to Russia in 1959 because he had made it clear to Nixon that you're over there just to do a goodwill tour, and he ended up having, having a public this spat with Khrushchev, which was great for Nixon's political career, but not. But, but it really wasn't a great, a great thing otherwise. The Venezuela trip was a, was a, was 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 terrifying. I, I talked to uh, to uh, General James Hughes, Don Hughes, who was with Nixon on the trip, and he said we you know, we thought we were going to be murdered. The car was being tipped, or people were throwing rocks. And at one point, a Secret Service agent with him it was uh, uh, got him sure what pulled out his gun and was prepared to fire fire on the mob and Nixon said, no, don't do that then we're really done for and and uh, and they got back to the hotel and completely shaken up they were spat upon and as say rocks were thrown at them and it was there's been nothing like it and it was it was a totally terrifying Nixon never had an experience like that before or after that that was that was that was, that was sui generous in terms of pres- vice presidential travels but it was it was quite terrifying as you're walking through your Belinda uh, they they make uh, much mention of how close Nixon came to the presidency on several occasions during Eisenhower's term, based on the uh, uh, the several heart attacks that the vice president had and his other maladies. Uh, and that is certainly uh, made clear in Evan Thomas's recent book, Ike's Bluff. I want to hear a little bit of a newsreel from Denver, Colorado, and uh, have you opine on how Nixon and and President Eisenhower thought about succession and the issues that it raised. Eisenhower seemed perfectly healthy in these films made in 1955, just before his sudden heart attack. His illness revealed, once again, America's unpreparedness to deal adequately with such an emergency. Stricken at Denver, Colorado home of Mrs. Eisenhower's mother, 
the president was helped into a car in the early morning hours, rushed along this street to the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital and placed in an oxygen tent. Meanwhile, leaving Washington for Denver were Press Secretary James Haggerty and Colonel Thomas Mattingly, a heart specialist from Walter Reed Army Hospital. In the Denver church where Ike worshipped, in churches and synagogues all across a shocked nation, America joined in spirit with Vice President Nixon, facing grave burdens in a situation not adequately defined by constitutional law. That's an understatement of the year, Jeff Frank. How did yeah. Nixon and Eisenhower deal with the issues of succession when it looked in many times like it might have to be used? The, the, heart, attack, the heart attack was, I think, probably the, the single, I hate to use, to use the modern phrase, the real game changer in their relationship. Vice presidents were always sort of considered you know, peripheral characters, throttle bottoms, even though Eisenhower did a lot to give Nixon stuff to do and to, and, and to make it a real job. But, but people were never thinking of vice presidents as heir to the presidency. This wasn't, this really wasn't in the air. It wasn't part of, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't part of our national consciousness when, you know, Roosevelt had three vice presidents, none of them, you know, including Truman, would ever consider presidential timber. And, uh, and suddenly Nixon was being, after the, I, people began to see, my gosh, this man could suddenly die. He's, 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 um, and, uh, he was, you know, he's 65 years old. And he was 65 years old. And the, the New York Times had a big headline a few days later saying Nixon, Nixon considered in forefront for 56, he suddenly became a real contender, and Eisenhower was aware of it. Um, Eisenhower, Eisenhower then got he, got, he had another serious illness in 1956, um, uh, ileitis, and then, uh, and then in 1957, he suffered a stroke. It was a minor stroke, but for, for at least 24 hours, Eisenhower was simply uh, unable to function. And Eisenhower, to his great credit, uh, actually, they actually formulated a sort of agreement that if Eisenhower thought he couldn't carry on, he would turn the office over to Nixon, or uh, not as a president, but as sort of a, but, but as sort of a, it, the duties would fall to Nixon, and then and then when Eisenhower felt ready to take it back again, he, he would. It, it was a very strange and cumbersome idea, and it never it was, it was never put into effect. But they were really they were really thinking seriously about it for the first time. And that actually actually the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which came along ten years later, was sort of came out of these experiences. But for but it was a real real change in their relationship. Suddenly, this this younger man was standing over the bed of this very frail president and 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 in his sick room and you could sort of see this transition could be about to happen and uh, and it didn't happen but it came very close and in the 1956 election when Adlai Stevenson was running for the second time one of his campaign issues was Nixon he said I, I you know in a very serious voice um, you know I think all the odds all the actuarial uh, knowledge we have tells us that that before Eisenhower's term is up Nixon will be, pre will be president so, uh, so it was. It was. It was very much. It was a very serious, uh, very serious uh, thing in terms of, in terms of, in terms of, in terms of Nixon's Nixon's future. And it also, and it also alarmed people uh, when it when it when it came to choosing a vice president in 1956. That was another reason that that Eisenhower felt pressure on him to 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 get someone else because suddenly Nixon became the actuarial favorite. Jeffrey Frank, author of Ike and Dick, one of the measures that people sometimes ascribe to presidencies to differentiate the fair, good, and great is whether a president can get reelected and also get his vice president elected to at least one term following an eight-year run. And Eisenhower has that opportunity in 1960, and it feels, as I was reading your book, as if the low point in the relationship between Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon had to come uh, when Eisenhower is asked uh, what 
contribution Nixon might have made to Eisenhower's presidency. And Eisenhower said, if you give me a few weeks, I may be able to think of something. How does Nixon react to that? Well, he was he was he was he was furious, and he was and he was just horrified, um, and he was on, on, and sort of angry angry at several levels. He was angry at Eisenhower for saying it. Eisenhower actually Eisenhower said, "Give me a week," because Eisenhower was actually having press conferences on an almost weekly basis then. But he but in this case, he did not come back in a week. He was furious at Jim Haggerty, Eisenhower's press secretary, for not doing anything to give him cover to sort of to sort of step up, step step forward and say, "Oh no, he didn't mean it that way." And uh, so it just sort of lingered, lingered after him. And then um, uh, Jack Kennedy used it in the campaign. He, they would, they would play Eisenhower's statement, and it was, it was, it was quite devastating. And uh, and and Nixon, I, I, you could, several things did Nixon in in 1960. That was that was certainly one of them. Another one was another one was not coming to the aid of, of Dr. Martin Luther King when he was when he was jailed on, on some totally trumped up charge. And uh, and, uh, and 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 also the the, the uh, famous debates where he where he looked where he looked like, as if he just come out of the grave when he was facing Kennedy, who was this spookily good-looking guy. And obviously, we we know what happened in 1960 thanks to that debate and and uh, and also to the razor close margins in both Texas and Illinois and what was done to uh, to get out the vote for Kennedy. Uh, but then comes what we all know from visits to Yorba Linda as the wilderness years, and they are interrupted almost briefly in 1962 when. Uh, Vice President Nixon runs for governor against Pat Brown. That campaign ends, and Nixon comes for his last press conference and with a very famous statement. Let's hear it. You've had a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, you, you, you've, you've had an opportunity to, uh, to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now, <laughs> and uh, you will now write it. You will interpret it. That's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore, <laughs> Jeff Frank. The The wilderness years started in, in that low point, but it seemed like as I walked through Yorba Linda that it was a... It, it became a progressively happier time, or at least more contented time, for Richard Nixon and Pat uh, in New York, and almost a time when uh, President Eisenhower came to respect his his junior partner a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, so it, also by the way, that last press conference, the Democrats thought they could always, if he ever Nixon ever came back, they could use it against him. Of course, if you it, it worked to Nixon's favor. If I mean, if you heard it five years later, oh well, he's just attacking the press, and uh, and the and the American public did, really didn't didn't mind that. Yeah, he was a happy guy in New York. He, he, um, he finally, you know, he was, he, he joined the law firm. He, uh, he passed the bar. He was, the family loved being there. Pat, his wife, loved it there. The, uh, Trisha and Julia's two daughters were in the Chapin School. They could be seen walking, walking their dog Checkers, who by this time was 12 years old, walking, walking Checkers along Fifth Avenue. And Nixon, Nixon had an interview with a, with a columnist named Roscoe Drummond, who was one of the big columnists of the time, and, and said, uh, I'm not going to run again in 1964 or 1968 or 1972. Anybody thinks I'm going to run again for anything is out of his head. And he meant it. And then the war, Jack Kennedy was killed, and that changed everything. Within days, Nixon could taste it. He 
was meeting with advisors. He was meeting with Leonard Hall, who was the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And he was already thinking maybe 1964 even again, but that was, he began to understand that wasn't going to happen. 1964 was between Rockefeller and, and, and Goldwater and Nixon. And when Goldwater got the nomination, Nixon just saw this as a, Nixon as a, as a the party was going to go down. He was going to work for Goldwater, and then he would, and then he would be in a pretty good position in 1968. He could already, like a, like a sort of great chess player, he could sort of see over the next over the next hill to the next election beyond 64. And suddenly the, the family was rattled. I mean, this whole this wonderful or not, I mean, Nixon would have been an elder statesman of the Republican Party. He would have gone to conventions. He would have campaigned, which he loved doing, given speeches. And he wouldn't, and Pat would have been free from this endless campaigning. He ne- they, she never got over the checker speech. She, and Nixon himself said it was like a scar that never healed. And Julie said, Julie wrote about it and said that every year on September 23rd, Nixon would turn to his family and say, you know what, today is, it's the anniversary of that speech. And, and, and they, politics was, they were done with it. And suddenly it was all back and, and, and their lives changed again. So despite the scars left by uh, Checkers, by 1960, by 1962, Nixon does win in 1968. And early on in his administration, which you detail uh, so clearly, the many trips back and forth to Walter Reed, President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, finally passes away. I want to hear a little bit of Harry Reisner as he introduced the state funeral. In just a few minutes, the first formal part of the state funeral for Dwight Eisenhower will begin in Washington. His body will be taken by an unescorted hearse from the private funeral home where it went yesterday to National Cathedral, Bethlehem Chapel there, where it will lie in repose until 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, and where for a good deal of that time it will be available for people to pass by for 45 minutes out of every hour uh, this afternoon and this evening. The funeral home hearse arrives at the entrance. The military officers at the entrance up their arms in salute. Jeff Frank, you write that the one-time Eisenhower aide William Ewald remembers Ike's brother Milton telling him that, quote, I'm glad the president did not live to see the things that the man, meaning Nixon, did. It is natural to wonder whether Watergate and all of its tributaries would ever have materialized if the patriarch had lived beyond the first two months of the Nixon presidency. That's your words, Jeff. What do you think uh, might have happened had Eisenhower had a longer life? You know, I, I mean, it's, you know, counterfactual history is totally irresponsible, but I completely love it. I really think... I don't think it would have happened. I think that if I think that if Eisenhower had been you know alive and alert as, as he was almost to the very end, he would have picked up the phone. He and he, he actually didn't stop calling him Dick uh, the minute Nixon was inaugurated. But he would have said, but he would have said something like, "Dick, what are you doing? What's going on here? Straighten this thing out. Come clean." And and Nixon would have listened. Nixon never never stopped needing his approval and his and his uh, and 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 even when even when Eisenhower was dead, he was um, um, he would he would sometimes say, "Oh, I've got to tell the president something." He Eisenhower was they were never they were never friends, but Eisenhower was a huge presence in his life, perhaps the most important person outside outside his wife and family. And uh, and if Eisenhower had been alive and been well, um, I don't think it would have happened. I think Eisenhower would have scolded him, would have told him something. Even even after he was, I mean, Eisenhower was already giving him advice on the Middle East, which we probably should listen to today in some some cases. Basically, saying that once we once we get involved, then we we own the situation. Our all our national prestige is on the line. He was he was he was basically urging total disengagement. But but Eisenhower was, but Nixon listened to him. 
and uh, and and I think that Eisenhower he would have listed Eisenhower on this too. But we'll never know. I was with uh, President Clinton the night that President Nixon died in 1994, orchestrating a uh, moment uh, in which the president walked out and spoke to cameras and announced uh, the 37th president's death. Then a few days later, all the living presidents get back onto Air Force One, fly to Yorba Linda, and uh, uh, here is President Clinton delivering part of President Nixon's eulogy. President Nixon opened his memoirs with a simple sentence. I was born in a house my father built. Today we can look back at this little house and still imagine a young boy sitting by the window of the attic he shared with his three brothers, looking out to a world he could then himself only imagine. From those humble roots as from so many humble beginnings in this country, grew the force of a driving dream. A dream that led to the remarkable journey that ends here today where it all began. Beside the same tiny home, mail ordered from back east, near this towering oak tree, which back then was a mere seedling. Jeff Frank, uh, in reviews of your book, uh, referring to your book and also Evan Thomas's work, uh, there's a sense that the revisionist history of Dwight Eisenhower is no longer revisionist, that he's not the golf-playing uh, aloof guy, but he was so he was very much uh, at the switch. Is right. there more revision to come of Richard Nixon, or are we going to be left with uh, this sort of confusing portrait that we still have? I think we'll always have a confusing portrait, only because his presidency at the end was, so, was, was, was such, a, such a mess. But but I think but I think we're going to have a more balanced portrait of him. I think we're going to see I think we're going to see more good things that he did and and and, and give him credit for that. I think that speech that Bill Clinton gave um, the, uh, was 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 maybe one of his great. It was a great speech. He that that phrase the the the, uh, the driving dream line was was a line actually that Ray Price wrote for Nixon when he was running early in 1968. And uh, and I'm sure that I'm sure that President Clinton was 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 well aware of that. And it, and and he also, as you remember, he also said we shouldn't judge a, a man's entire life. Lifetime by 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 one thing, and he was probably speaking also about himself at that time. But he was all yeah. he was clearly, but he's also clearly talking about about Nixon and Watergate. So uh, revisionism, uh, that's not the word, but we're going to begin to see him more clearly, and we're going to begin to have more sympathy for him as a, as a human being, and we're going to begin to see that, as I said to you earlier, he was not the disgraced former president for that much um, up, up until before 1974, and he was. Um, and, and and he accomplished a, lo- a lot of things. Even as and as president, he was. I mean, I'm, you know, you've, you've heard the whole laundry list. Of not only domestically the EPA and so on, but the opening to China, the first significant arms agreement with the Soviet Union, the, the you know, the, you know, the, the signing the Clear Act, Clean Air Act in 1970. And even though he didn't do a radical welfare reform when Moynihan was there, lots of changes, for example, in, in, in were, were made that in terms in terms of in terms of welfare and so on were made while he was. So he he was a very a very productive and creative presidency that went very very bad, and that's that's what people are going to have to keep sorting out. And so in a way, I, I was I was pleased to end this before Watergate, before Vietnam, because then that's, that's those issues have been have been dealt with in, in such depth and with such detail, and that was that was what I was trying to do here.
Absolutely. And it pr- paints an amazing portrait, Jeff Frank, and uh, enhanced by anyone's visits to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene or the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. Thanks so much for painting this portrait. The author is Jeffrey Frank. The book, Ike and Dick, Portrait of a Strange Political Marriage. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. I really enjoyed it. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.